Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Well, in Cormac McCarthy's The Road, McCarthy paints a brutal picture of a post-nuclear future where the world has completely fallen apart. There are ruthless warlords who take everything they can through violence. Everybody is competing with everyone else for the few scarce resources that remain, and the very ground itself is covered in ash. But in the midst of this vicious world, McCarthy tells the story of a father and a son, and their daily struggle for survival, and safety, and their care and love for one another. The narrator doesn't go into all the reasons for why the world is the way that it is. He simply shows the man and the boy accepting the reality of their circumstances and continuing to forge on. The man feels the weight of love for his young boy to protect him, and the boy serves as a beacon of an unnamed hope. The man and the boy, who themselves are never actually named in the story, call themselves carriers of the flame. And even though the world is bleak, they keep moving, keep pressing on. Welcome today. I'm so excited for this talk that I have for you. It's going to be a little bit of a thinker. So I encourage you, I know many of us, we watch these Sunday morning services, maybe gathered with other people, with our children around. If this isn't the easiest time for you to kind of engage your mind, find another time to listen. I I think this is such a beautiful and hopeful message, and I hope that it deeply resonates within our community. One of the questions that the road is tracing is how do we maintain our humanity when it seems like everything has fallen apart around us. Now, I can think back to the eerie early days of the pandemic. One moment that stands out so viscerally for me from the very first week when everything was shutting down, when, to quote McCarthy, it seemed that the frailty of everything was revealed at last. I was standing in the aisle of our local grocery store, And I was looking around, so many of the canned goods, the beans and tomatoes were all completely picked over and gone. And I don't know if you remember this, I could feel this urgency in my own body. I'm not typically an anxious person, but my anxiety levels were high. And the urgency and the anxiety was telling me to get, to grab everything that I could so that our family would have enough. And as all this is going on, over the loudspeakers, the ever-present grocery store music, those songs that play that you barely notice, but when you, when you do listen, either you're like, oh, I, I used to listen to this song, or you're like, this song is terrible. Why would anybody be listening to this still? Well, it was playing a song that I recognized. And it's a shame when you get to the point of your life where music that was somewhat formative for you or important to you at one point is now just background music for the people buying Diet Coke and other things like that. But that's where we are. And the song that was playing was a song called Zombie by the band The Cranberries. And I'd heard the song, but but I hadn't heard it like this because it wasn't the Cranberries that were singing the song. It was some kind of Nickelback or some other type band like them that was covering the song. It was like a zombie version of zombie. And it was then that I really began to get worried. 
I don't know if you can think back to the early days of the pandemic. Can you trace not just the memories, but the memories of the feelings? I think if we can do that, if we can put ourselves in that space, this is going to give us a sense for what the people that Jeremiah is writing to that we're going to encounter today are experiencing. In Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah is writing to the people that have been carried off into exile in Babylon. Now for these people, everything that they have ever known has shaken beneath them. The Babylonians have taken captive their city, certainly killing loved ones in the process, and force-marched those who remained, those, the recipients of Jeremiah's words that we're going to read today, hundreds of miles to exile in Babylon. And Jeremiah writes a letter to these people that have endured all of this trauma. And he, he offers them sobering truths about their situation. And he gives them instructions on how to cope with their new reality. And ultimately, as we're going to see, he gives them hope. In Jeremiah chapter 29, beginning in verse 8, Jeremiah writes to the people in exile. He says, yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Jeremiah's instructions to the people are first about reality itself. Jeremiah, throughout his ministry, is constantly dealing with false prophets who tell the people exactly what they want to hear. It reminds me, again, of the early days of the pandemic. Do you remember the slogan, two weeks to stop the spread? And yet, here we are. Jeremiah is saying to the people, look, this is going to be a 70-year deal, an exile that spans multiple lifetimes. And for Jeremiah, the stark contrast between Babylon and Jerusalem would be so obvious. The people that had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon would have no mistaking, no delusions about the differences in their circumstances. They would start with the things that they would see. The Babylonians would have images of their gods, of Baal and Asherah and others, while the God of Israel prevented the people from forging any images, any likenesses of him. The book of Daniel spells out this juxtaposition as Nebuchadnezzar has a large golden statue made and decrees that everyone in the kingdom should bow down to worship it. The book of Daniel paints the picture of life in Babylon and in the Persian Empire which would follow it. And the book of Revelation picks up on this imagery stunningly, describing Babylon as a prostitute under the influence of dark forces and therefore facing the judgment of God. The status of the exiles for those that Jeremiah is addressing is obvious. Their situation has changed. And for those people, it would have been so visceral to look around and see a completely different vista, a completely different representation of the religion of the empire. But here's the thing for us. One of the difficulties of living in the American culture is that we can easily be blinded to our status as exiles. We 
look around and we don't make any religious sense of the images that we see. We can believe the beguiling words of mythology that try to tell us that America is a Christian nation founded upon the values of the kingdom of God. But if we are to look, if we peer into the history of this supposed Christian nation, what we discover is that this was a nation that was stolen from indigenous peoples who had long cultivated this land before any colonizers arrived, and then subsequently built upon the back of black and brown people who were stolen from their own homelands, separated from their ancestral homes and their families, and were forced to build the wealth of what would become the United States of America. This Christian nation started by exterminating people, by treating others as animals and as machines, not people made in the image of God. Willie James Jennings, in his book, The Christian Imagination, traces not only the historic roots, what happened in the past, but the ongoing impact on our culture and the church. And he summarizes his thesis briefly saying, Christianity and the Western world lives and moves with a diseased social imagination. James K. Smith, in his book, Desiring the Kingdom, Smith describes cultural liturgies, these seemingly innocuous practices and habits that form in us what the philosopher Charles Taylor calls a social imaginary. Charles Taylor describes a social imaginary, the shared world carried in images, stories, and legends. James K. Smith details the liturgies of the shopping mall, of the university, of the stadium, these cultural spaces that we enter into, inhabit their vision, and then are subsequently shaped by them. James K. Smith writes, I want to give you a heightened awareness of the religious nature of many of the cultural institutions we inhabit that you might not otherwise think of as having anything to do with Christian discipleship. By religious, Smith writes, I mean that they are institutions that command our allegiance, that vie for passion, and that aim to capture the heart with a particular vision of the good life. One of the words that I think that Jeremiah has for us today uh, is to see ourselves as exiles living in the shadow of an American empire. To understand that there are times where our allegiance to Jesus and our allegiance to the American vision will be at odds with one another. Peter, in the opening of his letter to the churches that he writes to, describes them and calls them exiles, resident aliens. Jeremiah first is trying to help us be plain and sober about the situation that we are in. We are exiles. We are under the rule of a foreign power. And I think for us this is so important because so many of the things that we see, unlike those that were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon, so many of the, thing, the things that we see seem neutral. But what James K. Smith and Willie James Jennings are trying to help us see is that there is nothing neutral about the stories that we inhabit. We have to excavate them and see what they might be shaping in us. And I think the question remains... As we see these people carted off into exile, can we, as these people living in exile, as these people living under this empire that has nothing to do with the kingdom of God, can we be faithful to God in such a setting? Throughout history, there have been people who have answered 
basically no to this question. Benedict of Nursia, seeing the decline of the Roman Empire in the 6th century, saw that the only option, in his eyes, to preserve a life of integrity before God was to run away, to flee to the desert, and to create an alternative society. We see this kind of response mirrored in the Amish of our own day. But, in our own democratic version of empire, Though we live in an American empire, it's a different sort of empire than the ones that the people from Jerusalem living in Babylon lived under. And in our version, we can also see the opposite end of the spectrum that is driven by a similar impulse that was not available to the exiles of Jeremiah's day. We see those that see the decadence of empire and think that they have to take control of the levers of government to shape the American laws and culture to, vi- to fit a vision of what a Christian apparently holds dear. Now, looking at Jeremiah's instructions to the exiles here in Babylon, after we understand that we, as Jesus' people, are ourselves exiles, I think that Jeremiah gives us a vision for how we are to live in the midst of our own exile. How do we live as dissenters? How do we live as revolutionaries to the status quo fighting the power? Well, the answer may surprise us. Look at what Jeremiah writes, beginning in verse 4 of Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease also. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So how do we take part in the revolution? This just sounds like a normal life, right? Build houses? Have kids? Send them off in marriage? This is the revolution? Well, it's easy for us to miss the ramifications of what's going on here. First, this isn't Jeremiah saying that the only answer to the claims of empire is to live the life of the nuclear family with your two-car garage and your two-and-a-half kids. No, Jeremiah's instructions here are not just about living a comfortable life in the midst of exile. They're about maintaining our identity as the people of God and living out his mission in the world. Genesis 12 features Israel's charter as a people. God's covenant with Abraham, echoing the charge given to all humanity in Genesis chapter 1, this is what establishes the people of God as a people. It identifies them as God's people, blessed by Him, and it gives them a task in the world. Let's take a look, Genesis 12, beginning in verse 12. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Now let's look at the particulars of this promise to Abraham. First, it's about land. These are not merely spiritual promises. It's about a place. 
Now, ironically, in Jeremiah chapter 29, our text for today, the people are being removed from the land that God gave to them. But what God demonstrates in the life of Abraham is that God is not just the God of the promised land. He is the God of the wilderness, the God of the journey, the God of the exile. God can fulfill his promises. God really does take Abraham and put him in a special land. He takes him from being a wandering Aramean to establishing him in the land. Second, the promise is about children. And not just about Abraham's children, but Abraham's children's children. It's about generations. Jeremiah's instructions to have sons and daughters and to give them in marriage is not saying that children are the hope that God has for us. Certainly they're a sign and a gift and a promise, but what Jeremiah is saying is that children are the way that the people of Abraham, in responding to the promise that God gave to Abraham, in this context, continue their mission. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses instructs the people, he says to them, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. For the people of God in exile, responding to Deuteronomy 6, this fundamental passage and what it means to be the people of God, Teaching the generations, passing down the faith is fundamental to the mission that God has for them in this new exilic space. And the last feature of the promise that was given to Abraham is that through Abraham's life, through his blessed life, his life with God, through that, that he will be a blessing. He and his people, the people that come after him, will bless the world. Jeremiah says it this way, to seek the peace the shalom of the city. Now, by living out your identity as my chosen people, God says, you will bless the city that you live in. Tim Keller says it this way, the Jewish exiles were not to hate the pagan city as they bided their time, waiting for the day of their departure. They were to be fully involved in its life, working in it and praying for it. At the same time, They were not to adopt its cultures or lose their distinctive identity as God's holy people. God called the Jewish exiles to accept and embrace the tension of the city for the sake of God's glory. This is exactly what today's Christians are called to do as well. Abraham was promised through you and through your offspring, I will bless all the nations of the world, God told him. And the risen Jesus promised his disciples, many of them unmarried and childless, that you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. We li- when we live out our identity in the midst of exile, the mission of God goes forward. Our circumstances do not stop the mission of God. Not the exile of the people of Jerusalem, not the coronavirus pandemic. The mission goes forward because God is with us, because we live out of our identity as beloved by God, and because we participate in God's mission. This means, in Jeremiah's context, that we're not to be separate from the places that we live in, but deeply immersed in the lives, in the heartbeat of the context where we live. 
but it also does not demand that we reach for the levers of power, that we have to legislate a Christian political vision to the masses. Jesus, in giving us our commission and telling us to go into all the world, proclaiming the reality of what he's done, teaching them to obey his teachings, in that same breath, he tells the disciples plainly that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him upon his resurrection. If we were to transpose Jeremiah's instructions to our own days of exile, what it means for us to live out of our identity as beloved of God, as people of God in the midst of our exile, we hold fiercely to our identity in Christ, which drives our going into all the world to declare the beauty of what he's done. We build houses and plant gardens of gospel hospitality, gathering around the table, taking care of those who don't have enough so that the world can come and feast at the table of King Jesus. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices, fleeing, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, from sexual immorality because we were bought with the precious blood of Jesus and we are temples of the Holy Spirit. We work for the peace of the city that we live in. It's all-encompassing peace by creating beauty through the arts, by our patient love for one another, by pursuing flourishing for all through things like food and education and access to medicine, by holding our leaders prophetically accountable to the standards of God's kingdom, by cultivating lives of quiet faithfulness and bold proclamation through word and deed. We pray for the city, longing for justice, longing for revival, longing for gentleness and mercy to reign. To echo Leslie Newbegin, we are neither separatists cloistered in our Christian enclaves, nor are we triumphalists who need the levers of governmental power. Jesus is Lord. People of the Jesus way need not remove ourselves from the lives of the places that we live in, nor need we control them. We are a people of a third way, resident aliens. And this is especially why we as apprentices to Jesus should, let me say that clearly, should feel like political exiles in the American system with its rigid false dichotomies. It may appear easier. We may wish it were so. It may be easier to hope that one party would be a paragon of Christian faithfulness, but neither the left nor the right can call themselves carriers of that vision. But hear me on this. Our call then is not simply to throw up our hands and say, well, both sides are wrong and both sides are terrible and opt out of the vision or to just choose one and be like, well, this one is less than the other one and buy wholesale the vision of one party over the other. No, our options are not to say, okay, well, I'm out of this, or I accept everything they're telling me. We have to be more discerning than that, right? No, Jeremiah tells us our call is to seek the peace of the place that we live in. Jesus tells it this way, blessed are the peacemakers. I think Esau Macaulay gives us a guiding vision for what it means for us to be people of peace, people of justice. Look at what he says. He says, peacemaking involves assessing the claims of groups in conflict and making a judgment about who is correct and who is incorrect. Peacemaking, then, cannot be separated from truth-telling. The church's witness does not involve simply denouncing the excesses of both sides and making moral equivalencies. It involves calling injustice by its name. 
And then Dr. McCauley offers a vision of peace for our own day. He says, if the church is going to be on the side of peace in the United States, then there has to be an honest accounting of what this country has done and continues to do to black and brown people. Moderation, or the middle ground, is not always the loci of righteousness. So how do we sift through all the rhetoric, all the half-truths, all the noise? The Bible is clear again and again that through exile, the people of God need the Spirit of God. He is our hope. He is our vision. Look at what it says in Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 11. For I know, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring back to the place from which I carried you into exile. You see, in exile, the hope that we have is that we will finally and fully and urgently need God. Often, as we see throughout the biblical narrative, it's excess and comfort that leads us to sinful idolatry that results in the kind of judgment that we find in the exile. But when we have come to the end of ourselves, when our greed has folded in on itself, we find God's mercy. We find God still pursuing us. God says, when you seek me, you will find me. When you pursue me with all of your heart, God promises that he will be found and I will bring you back. I love this image because it's the image, just as the people were led off into exile by the Babylonians, God himself is coming to us and leading us back in triumphant procession. Our hope in exile is nothing short of God himself. And it's such an important thing to remember here. It's the actions of the people of God that led them into exile in the first place. Like the younger son in the story of the prodigals, it's our own denial of the Father's love for us, our demanding of our own rights, our own wastefulness that leads us into the far country. But Jesus doesn't wash his hands of us. He doesn't say, good riddance, I told you this would happen, good luck to you. No, he comes to us. He brings us back. And to do so, Jesus himself goes into exile. He is bound at the hands and marched to Golgotha where he is strapped to a cross, nailed there. He is abandoned and alone. My God, why have you forsaken me? He calls out. But as Jesus gives himself over to exile, as he goes into the far country, as he descends to the depths of the grave, Paul the Apostle reflects that Jesus on the cross and the resurrection, when he ascended on high, he makes captivity itself a captive. Ecclesia, we do not serve a God who leaves us alone in our exile. He comes to us. When I think about Cormac McCarthy's story, the story of the road, and I think about this boy as this unnamed symbol of hope, as the world is literally caving in around this man and his son. And this boy, this sense of a future generation in a world where there are few children. In the midst of exile, it can feel like everything is lost. It can feel like there is no hope. But look at what God says 
I know the plans I have for you. Uh, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Ecclesia, even when we find ourselves in the midst of the exile of life, whether it be the general exile that we live in as Christians living in a foreign empire, or whether it be the exiles that we sometimes have done to us or that we choose ourselves, He knows the plans that He has for us. Plans to prosper, not to harm. Plans to come to us. And He says plainly, when you call on me, when you pray to me, I will listen. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Friends, if you feel like you're in exile this morning or this evening, I encourage you. Would you just cry out to him? Would you let your heart be fully devoted and pointed towards him because he says you will find him, that he is right there with you, even in the midst of your darkest hour. The Lord declares that He will bring you back from the captivity of your life and will bring you into a hope and into a future. And as we live this exilic life, whether it be the exile of living in a foreign empire as the people of God as resident aliens, whether it be the exile of the pandemic and feeling isolated and alone, let us hear this word anew. That God has not abandoned us. That God has not left us to our own devices or to suffer the whims of fate. He is our God. He will lead us. He will guide us. He will come to us. He has for us a hope and a future. In the midst of exile, we need His Spirit. We need His wisdom, His discernment. In the midst of exile, we need His hope. We need to cry out to Him with all of our hearts. Let us be a people who put down the devices of our own design, who say, I actually can't do it on my own. I need God. I need His power, His provision, His vision for my life. And let us be a people who hear the word of the Lord anew. He knows the plans He has for us, plans for good, not for harm. He is our hope. He is our future. And He comes to us in the midst of every exile. Grace and peace to you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.